A quick note before the show starts. We're planning new episodes of Trailblazers right now. And as we do, we'd love to know your thoughts. We've put up a short survey at our website, delltechnologies.com slash trailblazers. And if you have the time, the whole survey only takes a couple of minutes and will really help us out. Again, that's delltechnologies.com slash trailblazers. And now, on with the show. It's 1959, and a new chapter in the search for human intimacy was about to be born. And it would happen in a place that not too many people in the world associate with being the epicenter of romance, the mathematics department of Stanford University. For their decidedly unromantically titled computer course, The Theory and Operation of Computing Machines, Philip Filer and James Harvey needed a final project that would employ Stanford's new state-of-the-art punch card computer. They called their project the Marriage Planning Service. First, they created a pool of 49 men and 49 women and asked each to take a survey. Among the questions, do you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert? Are you patient or impatient? Are you affectionate or unaffectionate? These insights were fed into the computer which took six hours to correlate the data, a process that would take today's laptop about two milliseconds. Based on the survey, the computer generated the best match first, then the second best match, and on down the line. The last man and woman to be paired? A Stanford freshman with a 40-something single mom. The project got an A anyway. The effect of those two Stanford undergrads, as well as a handful of other digital pioneers, cannot be overstated. From that day on, the combination of desire and the power of digital technology would disrupt humankind's eternal search for the perfect match in ways never imagined. I'm Walter Isaacson, and this is Trailblazers, an original podcast from Dell Technologies. You young punks go to the movies a couple of times, do a little necking, and you think you're in love. How do you choose a date? Just me and the girl. They began to go to secluded places, and their relationship became more intimate. Will they be companions as well as lovers? Take my advice. Think twice before you start going steady. I've been in love several times before. Who knew that the secret to finding that special someone would be guacamole? According to the dating site Zeusk, those mentioning food in their dating profile are more prone to attract messages. The word chocolate boosts responses by 100%. Mention of potatoes causes a 101% increase. And mention that magic word guacamole and see your desirability increase by a whopping 144%. Zeusk examined 4 million dating profiles and surveyed 7,000 people to learn more about how food connects to dating. Just as medieval cultures created love potions from mandrake roots, beetle wings, and worms, 
Today's purveyors of amour are turning to big data. And with one in five Americans actively using dating sites and apps, there's plenty of source material. Not surprisingly, Zeus declines to explain these findings. As with so much big data, it's all about the what, but much less forthcoming about the why. Though still in its infancy, today's multi-billion dollar digital dating industry is changing the way people connect and even the nature of relationships. Yet it's just the latest chapter in the story of how commerce and technology have shaped the ancient art of matchmaking. The first technology to affect massive change on matchmaking and courtship was the printing press. The printed word begat newspapers and classified ads. Boy Meets Girl met ink and broadsheet. As early as 1695, England's first classified ad appeared. 30-year-old gentleman with a very good estate searching from some young, good, gentlewoman that has a fortune of 3,000 pounds or thereabouts. By the 1900s, long before the farmer's only dating app was a gleam in its developer's eye, mail-order brides helped populate America's West. Following the San Francisco gold rush, an opportunistic publisher created the Matrimonial News. For 25 cents, a man could place an ad seen by single women all over the country. Ads were free of charge to women. Even so, few young ladies would expect to marry without the blessing of their family. That is, until the early 20th century, when an urban economic shift would change the tradition of courtship. Mara Weigel is a writer, scholar, and founding editor of Logic, a magazine about technology and culture. What's really distinctive about dating, and what I call the invention of dating, is this move from private, family, community-controlled spaces to market spaces and public spaces and everything that comes along with that. So if we think of, like, the Jane Austen scenario, <laughs> when, you know, you're sitting at home in your parlor, your mom or your aunt or your sister is there, some new guy came to town, he can expect 100 pounds a year or whatever it is, all the incentives are aligned. The platform of courtship is a family home it's supervised by parents, and the people who own the platform and are supervising your courtship have an incentive in seeing you paired off well. That all changed as courtship moved outside the family home and beyond the jurisdiction of controlling parents. Once dating moves into public and market spaces, the people who own the platform do not have that incentive. The guy who owns the boardwalk or the movie house or the dance hall, if we're talking about, you know, the late 19th, early 20th century, when these practices first develop, does not have the same interest in seeing you pair off with someone that your mom did. And in fact, has the opposite interest. It's much better for the owner of the bar economically if nobody ever pairs off and stays home with kids, right? They want everyone to keep coming to the bar. And so there's this deep fact in the DNA of dating that when courtship moves from private and family-controlled spaces to market spaces, it produces this gap between the interests of people who are theoretically trying to seek life partners or to pair off and the interests of the owners of the platforms. And it's this gap between 
economic interests, and romantic interests that would go on to shape the dating industry right up until today. Many dating services may market themselves as a quick, easy, and even fun way to meet your soulmate, but the true business model behind many is to keep the user engaged, funding those services for as long as humanly possible. And it was under this notion of the power of repeat customers that the economy of fix-ups was born. Let's skip ahead a bit. The only thing we have to fear is... Keep going. Godspeed, John Glenn. A little more. But upward to the Great Society. There, to 1964, five years after those Stanford undergrads dabbled in digital matchmaking. If you were to cast the role of the pioneer in commercial computer dating, you could be forgiven for overlooking England's Joan Ball. She'd been physically abused by her mother, estranged from her parents, and institutionalized. At 19, with no home to return to, she worked as a shop clerk before taking a job at a marriage bureau, a non-digital matchmaking service. Marie Hicks is an assistant professor of history of technology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She found that she had a real knack for doing this sort of work. And so she set up her own marriage bureau. And within a year or two, she started to realize that these sort of very individualized, bespoke matchups, where she was putting a lot of labor into matching people up, um, she needed help with that. And so she decided to automate it. And that's where she came up with the whole premise for a computer dating business. And it was so successful, even just the first run, that she actually changed the name of her marriage bureau to reflect the fact that it was now a computer dating business. The new name was Compat, a conflation of computer and compatibility. Unlike the primitive computer dating of the time, Joan Ball infused the process with the insights she'd gained working with the Marriage Bureau. Unlike so many other people, especially so many other young men who started computer dating businesses in the 60s and in the 70s, she actually had experience as a matchmaker. She actually had experience trying to match people up and deal with their desires and deal with what they didn't like and try to figure out how to get people together in a humane way. And she built that into her computing system. For Joan Ball, promoting her new business was an uphill climb. She was a female entrepreneur in a culture that didn't yet place a value on that. Worse still, conventional ad media wouldn't stoop to run creative for a business so tawdry as computer dating. That didn't stop Joan Ball. She took her advertising offshore to another group of social outliers, Pirate radio stations operating on ships off the coast. These so-called pop pirates transmitted from international waters, playing the new rock and roll music that the BBC wasn't ready to allow. 
Joan Ball thought, oh, well, you know, if if regular publications who are so concerned about the appearance of impropriety won't take my ads, what if I advertise with the pop pirates? And so she did. And I think that really was a smart move because she was advertising with people who were similarly iconoclastic, similarly on the cutting edge, and it was likely to reach an audience of people who were more likely to use her business. Meanwhile, 3,200 miles to the east, a small group of Harvard undergrads was creating a computer dating venture of its own, but with a decidedly different motive. Marie Hicks. They just sort of came up with this idea. And the reason they came up with this idea was because they absolutely hated going to college mixers. So like going up the road to Radcliffe and standing around clutching a drink for an evening and trying to meet women. They said that the college mixer was a particular social evil. And so they were trying to get women without all the hassle of having to go through the trouble of actually meeting them and talking to them. That's how they were going to, you know, short circuit things. They were going to use a computer. They called their computer dating service Operation Match. For $3, customers filled out a questionnaire answering twice, once for themselves and again for their ideal date. And it was promoted very much as a lark, see who your ideal date would be. Judge Douglas Ginsburg is a U.S. Circuit Court judge and a former nominee to the Supreme Court. But back in the mid-60s, he was a university dropout who had joined forces with the Harvard undergrads to run Operation Match. And um, we had the data key-punched into, uh, into cards. The data were actually sent to Korea to a uh, service bureau there that uh, did the card preparation, brought back to the U.S., and uh, we contracted with a computer servicing company to run the programs that we'd written in order to get the best matches from among the participants. The company became a cause celeb and was widely, and incorrectly, celebrated as the world's first computer dating company. We had a tremendously good reception among students and got some very good publicity, including a cover in Look magazine. And so we rolled it out nationally the following uh, September. And that was really a big turning point uh, for us. We had every prospect of being a, uh, a successful national and enduring company, which didn't happen. In time, Ginsburg and his colleagues sold their interest in Operation Match. While in England, Joan Ball's Compat lasted 10 years before she sold out to her corporate arch-rival, Dateline. These computer dating pioneers created platforms for meeting and did their best to create match algorithms. More importantly, they warmed the culture to the idea of digital dating. None of them foresaw the scale of the revolution that was still to come. If you can't remember whether you've met Gary Kremen, then you haven't met him. He's an energetic, shamelessly confident software pioneer with a Stanford MBA and a knack for disruption. As a student, he was given an internship at Goldman Sachs. Just three weeks in, a Goldman executive offered to buy out the rest of his summer wages if he would leave immediately. 
In the early 90s, Kremen ran a small software company in Silicon Valley. He also ran up a sizable tab calling 1-900 dating numbers. In those days, a product of newspaper classified ads. Yeah, so the, the business model back then is newspapers would publish, you know, um, single white male seeking blah, 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 usually a single white female in the heterosexual dating world. Uh, and then you would contact that person by calling a 900 number and your phone would get billed for it and you would leave a message and hopefully someone would call you back and I would get bills of like $50, Kremen believed he had a better idea to create an online classified ad service. So I took a cash advance on my credit card, moved from uh, like the Palo Alto area up to South Park in San Francisco, and I started writing software for this idea that people could fill out a form and email send it into my computer program, and it would match them up with people. That was kind of the genesis. So the first incarnation of, let's call it internet dating, but it was still email, was based on email. You would fill out a form, our little program, my program would parse it, find a match for you, and maybe send back the information on their form, and potentially with a picture. In a time when web domain names were free, Kremen acquired the rights to some of the world's most valuable URLs, including jobs.com, autos.com, housing.com, and even sex.com. For this venture, he obtained match.com as the company expanded to offer both email and web-based services. The next challenge was marketing. So I had this idea um, that I'll call it influencer marketing, the best way to market was, I, I realized that given the uh, um, lack of women online, they were the people. So we only marketed the women and we marketed to women's influencers who would influence women online, maybe in academia or business or other things. So we, uh, I hired a woman general manager, um, a classmate of mine who uh, figured out, let's do some brand management, uh, and just focus on women, make an interview. We interviewed over 100 women and asked them what they would want. And you have to understand at the time, putting your profile, your personal information, that was a radical idea. People thought it was crazy that, oh, no one would ever put their heart online. No one would ever do that. But I had a feeling that, you know, if you think of the Maslow hierarchy of needs, love is up there. In 1995, as the brand gained traction, Gary Kremen experienced what some would call a John Lennon moment. They pushed me to go do interviews, and it made sense. You know, articles would uh, come out, and then people would maybe read about it, although the amount of people who'd be reading a story and the amount of people on the Internet was a small uh, set together. But I, I used to have less um, caution than I did, and I, I did see the vision for people meeting each other online and how big online dating would be. So I said that, you know, we're going to create more love than uh, Jesus Christ. And I got a lot of flack from my investors, the beginning of me and, and my investors not getting along well. Yet it wasn't his invoking Jesus's matchmaking prowess that ended Gary Crimmins' run 
as CEO of Match.com. Rather, it was his vision for who might use it. Yeah, so I was a believer that um, relationships and love is a wide spectrum and everyone deserved love and relationships. So um, I, being in control for a little while at least of everything, I changed it from just long-term dating to maybe let's call short-term dating, from heterosexual dating to inclusive, first LBGTQI dating, and we marketed in that area, and that really got uh, the investors really frazzled up. I won't say they were homophobic, but uh, maybe someone else would say that. There was also a difference over business strategies that marked the end of the first incarnation of Match.com. They wanted to sell this technology to newspapers. And I knew that was a bad idea because I went to go talk to newspapers and I saw how slow and conservative they were. And I kind of had a feeling they were roadkill, which is what happened. And they wanted to sell technology and power their classified advertising. And I said, absolutely not. That's never going to work. And they said, yes, it's going to work. And we don't want this embarrassing dating thing. So they sold it to a company called Ascendant for $7 million who nine months later sold it for $50 million. Gary Kremen even found his own match, but it wasn't through Match.com or any other dating site. That's true. How I uh, met my, well, former wife was um, through, I offered a reward because I understand people's motivations. So I offered a trip to Hawaii for two for the person who set me up with the person I would marry, and that worked out. So I did believe in, I learned a little bit about customer acquisition and lead generation. True to Gary Kremen's vision, dating sites gradually began filling those niches. New dating sites emerged based on race and color, body type, and faith. Then a decade ago, a new technology was introduced. And at long last, online dating found its digital soulmate, the app. Their impact on dating has been transformative. Mobile apps provide portability, ease, the benefits of geolocation, and anywhere, anytime connectivity, which according to writer Maura Weigel, may be a blessing and a curse. I think that it's really hard to separate how mobile apps are changing romance from all these other factors that are also changing romance. But I do think that it's making romance more flexible for good and for ill. The thing that's important to that at like a human level for romance, I think, is to remember that these apps are designed to get us to process as many people as possible, which may not be what we want as humans. After the digital revolution, we may be in for a different form of romance and family formation, and maybe that's great. But it's certainly true that in tandem with the rest of the platform economy, the apps are changing courtship too. Studies show that people who once spent hours gazing down a bar now spend that time fine-tuning their online dating profile. An article in The Atlantic tells of women who spend 10 to 15 hours on online dating each week in order to generate one date. At the epicenter of these apps is Tinder, credited for the gamification of dating. Profiles are photo-based. Swipe right. If you like someone, swipe left if you don't. Block someone, message someone else. And unlike conventional person-to-person -person venues, no courage is required. 
Users only know when they've been approved, not when they've been rejected. I think that there is something really qualitatively new about mobile dating apps, and particularly about the way in which they make it possible to be looking for love all the time. I often hear people talk about the sense that dating is work. It's something that people feel an obligation to do. And like all the rest of our work lives, now that we have computers in our pockets and in our beds 24 hours a day, it's something people feel compelled to do all the time. So I think that the sh shift to mobile dating platforms is this sense of 24-7, constant shopping, you know, constant shopping around, constantly trying to sell yourself, and feeling that that never turns off. And therein, lies the disruptive magic of the dating app. They promise the prospect of intimacy with others. Their business model depends on your forming a relationship with the app itself. And unlike going to the bar to try to find your soulmate, dating apps never close for the night. Just as dating radically changed the rituals of courtship more than a century ago, digital technology has already changed dating forever. As it does, the very definition of the word dating grows more opaque. To some, it's about marriage. For others, it's recreation. For some, it's platonic. To others, decidedly not. And for some, it's about the simple dopamine hit of knowing someone right-swiped their profile picture. The desire for intimacy is as old as humanity itself. Online dating reminds us that the tools we use to find it are constantly changing, and in turn, changing us. But maybe some things don't change. A little guacamole never hurts. I'm Walter Isaacson, and this is Trailblazers, an original podcast from Dell Technologies. For more information about the business of dating, visit our website, delltechnologies.com slash trailblazers. And join us for the next episode, where we'll be looking at the business of space and how Silicon Valley is beating NASA at its own game. Until then, thanks for listening.